The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. Sophie Macklin is an anarchist mystic who lived in California for 15 years, but recently returned home to England. She practices Brythonic polytheism, anti-fascism, and a devotion to the animate world. And she specializes in topics related to radical history, anti-capitalism, anti-fascism, reclaiming the commons, and exploring different ways of knowing. She's an educator whose work has deeply impacted my own. Sophie has previously appeared on the show, episode 169, when we talked about anti-fascist folklore. We also spoke about disability and chronic illness. Sophie has Ehlers-Danlos disease, a connective tissue disorder, and I know many of my listeners are already familiar with it through personal experience or maybe because of my recent episode on the RCCX theory of complex illness. Ehlers-Danlos is awful. (laughs) At times it's excruciating. And it's within the context of that lived experience that Sophie also teaches in her course, Ungovernable Bodies, about anti-ableism and about historic attitudes towards disability that have shaped our present day healthcare and social norms. Once again, it hasn't always been this way. If you haven't heard that episode, then you probably wouldn't know that Sophie is the person I chose to be the first reader of the manuscript for my book, The Spirited Kitchen. She's just one of the smartest people I know. And I really wanted to be careful with my book around what to valorize and what not to valorize in a book about ancestral veneration. As a white settler under capitalism and in this time of increasing fascism, I just, I knew I needed to be very clear and very firm so that my work couldn't be co-opted into the service of white supremacy. I'm so grateful for Sophie for helping me see how I could improve my manuscript So I've invited Sophie back to the show and also to be a presenter at my annual Witches New Year event, which I'll say more about at the end of the episode. In this episode, we're talking about a period of history in England when we see the end of access to common lands and like a communal style of land management to the system of private property and land ownership, which we now think of as normal. I personally love hearing Sophie teach about this topic, and I know you will too. I'm sure your inner free spirit, your inner adventurer that yearns for the right to roam freely across the land will feel inspired by her knowledge and her reminders that this is not how it has always been, nor how it needs to be. So Sophie, what identities do you lead with now? Right. So yeah, I think I'll probably end up saying something similar to what I said last time, which is that I feel like probably like everyone else, I feel just part of everything and not really uh, bound by identity. But the identities that situate me in the current power structures are uh, I'm white, uh, disabled, cis, um, working class woman, um, 
and yeah funnily enough like since I've moved back to England in the last year and I'm feeling much more aware of my identities as a family member like I feel like a daughter a sister a niece an aunt a, a granddaughter whatever all the things and that feels really I'm really seeing myself in relation to my family a lot of the moment I hope it's okay for me to share with listeners how when I took your Ungovernable Bodies course, your mom was in it too. And I think maybe we were like the only two people who didn't have really strong lived direct experience of being disabled. Um, but I, and she never spoke and I never spoke, but I just really identified with her as a mother of a child who is brilliant and suffers. And so when I heard that you were going home, I just, I just thought of your mom. And I was like, I'm so happy for her. I'm so relieved that you are home. And it's mm. very sweet to me to hear that you are relating as a family member. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's very sweet to hear, hear that. So you've gone back not only to your um, childhood roots, and your mm -hmm. family home, but you've gone back to like what I would consider like the motherland, like you've gone back to the actual <laughs> <laughs> land where one of your identities, like you speak with an accent, you know, it's mm -hmm. like you come, yeah, you, it's yeah. very clear that you come from a certain geography. And today we wanted to talk about like capitalism, but let's go back to pre-capitalism. There's a naturalization of capitalism, so we can't even imagine what it was like. But you've gone to a place where actually you can remember you have, you know, possibly better records there. There, there really isn't very much time that we've had in the new world that wasn't capitalism. Do we know about human communities before the enclosures and capitalism? Yeah, thank you for that. Um... Wait a second, I should just say... There's lots of time in on I was in North say. America that is like pre-capitalism, <laughs> but as a white person who comes as yeah. a settler, I, it's like I yeah. can't remember it. It's it. This is the naturalization of it, right? It's like I don't yeah. have any ancestral memory of that. He, I try to learn that from indigenous folks, but it feels so distant at times. So yeah. what do, what do we know from your perspective as a person who's in England? Yeah, um, it's funny, actually. And something else I want to respond to is what you've just said about that difference between the places, because I hadn't really been thinking about that just before we came on. But um, I think in a way that difference or sort of the what it was like before almost exists as a cultural memory in a way, I would say more so like in uh, like North America, where because it's like a much newer like settler state instead of something that kind of transitioned more slowly um here and over centuries I feel like you can often really see the edges of it um in the US and Canada um and where there are still indigenous people with a very strong lived memory of something else or a continuation of something else who are resisting and um fighting for that very different life way and here that's not happening at all like that mm. cultural memory of um a sort of non-capitalist way of being feels extremely kind of and almost literally built over you know like mm -hmm. the architecture in the land is the architecture of post-enclosure um and we're still living in the kind of dream of those early capitalists and everyone that came next and so there's a way it's kind of more like quaint and nice looking or something 
than kind of like American cities that are kind of a bit more brutal or something. But um, but there's you can see the edges. Yeah. Um, right. That that totally makes sense to me. It's it's so interesting to talk about this from the perspective as a settler who feels so displaced, not only in space, but through time mm-hmm. and just, and to be here, you know, I look at indigenous lifeways and think like, God, that is so just unknown. It's so foreign, you know, there's yeah. like, you know, four different language groups from within half an hour of where I live and seven different nations. And it really does when it, when I am engaging with indigenous elders, it really does feel like I should have a passport. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. this is, you know, mm-hmm. th- it is so different. It's such a different life way. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I, then when I see you go home to England, home, I don't know, anyway, you go back to your family lands and you can look and say, oh, this is a fen that was drained. This is a, you know, mm-hmm. and we have records of the resistance and we have written history of that. It just seems like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that it feels like connection to me. So it's really interesting yeah. to hear you say like, actually, I feel the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And I think a lot of people who are kind of trying in England, trying to reclaim and Ireland and Scotland and Wales, like trying to reclaim um, more like animist lifeways or something are often looking to indigenous people in other places for um, understanding or lifeways or clues of like what it might have been like. Like there really is an intense level of um, amnesia, disconnection or something that um, exists here. And like you said, um, there is also the thing where um, you can go to certain places and see where certain things happened and imagine what things were like before or yeah, go to um, archives or like local history sections of libraries and look through stuff. And and I, I do a lot of that and find that really meaningful. So I, I understand um, the kind of the benefits of that piece too. So what was it like then from what you've learned when you're researching in the local history, what do you imagine that life was like prior to capitalism? Like how did human communities function before that? Um, I think, Where you know, you are. I should say yeah (laughs) um and we're going to be talking a bit about enclosure in in a minute I know and sort of thinking about the time before enclosure and I think one of the important things about looking at time before capitalism is that it's hundreds of thousands of years of humans doing stuff and that capitalism is so strange and so recent and so new um and that so many different life ways have existed beforehand and so when we're looking at the past for clues of how we can live we've actually got a lot of options or um choices in terms of like what to re-engage with or what to be fed by or what to learn from um because there's just so much history before <laughs> before this um but in that kind of immediate prior to enclosure period um I guess like, you know, it's often talked about that transition to capitalism as kind of the transition from feudalism to capitalism, almost as this kind of like evolution in um, social complexity, in kind of progress, um, this idea that it was kind of this just natural thing that makes sense to do that, of course, we don't want to live with lords and serfs, so, you know, capitalism, then we have individual freedom and stuff like that, when in actual fact, through the feudal era 
serfs are contesting that relationship um there's kind of relentless class struggle with um instead of this very static idea that gets presented you know there are massive movements that are um sort of heretical christian movements of challenging the ideas of who has authority like you know against like the pope and the church and stuff like that um looking for ways to yeah increase their um uh freedoms basically of, of time or um, ways that they can look after themselves within that what we can see in the kind of um oh actually I guess I just want to say that um that was really really contested like after the black death um when sort of 40 percent of the population of Europe were killed um that put the peasants in a really strong position where they could kind of demand more because there's just like less workers essentially um, and so we see like a lot more antagonism kind of building. And I think we can really see, and this is kind of coming from Silvia Federici's idea that the transition to capitalism, quote unquote, is really um, a kind of counter revolution from the elites to regain control. But um, within those villages, like before, um, before the enclosures and before that transition, um, there's something that I think is quite evocative to us still, this idea of the commons um, and thinking of sort of what life was like in a in a village. It would be quite different to what we think of as life in a village now, where people have um, rights to farm on land, to graze on land, as um, <laughs> in to graze the animals on land, not to go and eat the grass, but um, and to use the forests for firewood or um use the lakes for fishing things like that so I think sometimes the way that commons are talked about is as if it's just a free-for-all that it's like land that's held by everyone and everyone's just sort of using it um but one of the things that's really interesting about the commons is that it was actually quite a sort of complex social arrangement where people had access to different um patches of land where they would uh grow stuff like within a family group say um, and their other patch that they have rights to might be quite far away, but it's because it's like a soil type where they would be able to have that sort of variety or something like that. Um, and that these things are kind of worked out sometimes through assemblies or sometimes more informally, but the constant kind of arrangement of the commons takes quite a high degree of um, communication, sociality, like sort of, um, yeah, in a way that I think is hard for us to comprehend now because it's so different from our way of surviving um, as individuals. And I think something else that's interesting about feudalism is the land isn't held in common, as in it's not owned in common, it's owned by the lords, but people have a right of access to it. Um, and it's something that's just kind of seen as by the lords and the serfs as like a, of course, people need access to land. Of course, people sort of have a right to be alive. Um, and that's something that with the transition to capitalism really gets taken away, where after enclosure, land is seen as the exclusive property of one person who can exclude others. And that's kind of a very sort of post-enlightenment idea of property. I read a really interesting book uh when I was researching The Spirited Kitchen about um, cattlemen in medieval Ireland. <laughs> so I read this whole book about, <laughs> about feudalism <laughs> in, in Ireland. And when you talk about the complex arrangement of the commons, there was like an entire chapter talking about how like this swale on the landscape was 
tended to intergenerationally by one family. And this is how the inheritance of that responsibility mm -hmm. went down through the line. The very next swale of land over had an entirely different complex family relationship through the generations, which is, is just kind of a fascinating uh, way for like somebody in present day to try to wrap your mind around having to track that many social connections. Like you say, oh, I've come home and now it turns out I'm a daughter and a sister and a, yeah. <laughs> an auntie and we can forget that so easily, right? It's just a yeah. whole different kind of um, worldview and, and um, relational kind of world on so many personal and political levels, hey? Yeah, yeah, I really think that that's one of the pieces that's hardest for us to sort of imagine, like what that would be like to be living with those kind of complex social arrangements, um, where people would know, you know, whose was whose and what's going on and what the arrangements are and are kind of constantly reaffirming that. And also that it's different from village to village or manor to manor. And that one of the things we can sort of trip up on if we try and describe the kind of pre- <laughs> Uh, pre-capitalist or just the commons life um is making it that it's just like one thing you know like people were doing different things in different places according to sort of what made sense to them and some were going better than others you know some were probably <laughs> not very nice places to be and some were probably great you know <laughs> like right um mm -hmm. but it would have just like really varied according to what people created um and also how much power they could get for themselves from the lords like um they, you know, people would come together to contest how much uh, sort of tax, you know, like in grain or whatever that they would have to pay. Um, and so some villages might have been more successful with that and so have more free time. Um, and actually more free time is another thing that kind of characterizes this era is that there's a lot more um, like celebration, days off, holidays, saints days, things like that, um, and a kind of value in rest um and sort of leisure togetherness <laughs> relaxation mm -hmm. that really changes over this period <laughs> how did this happen like how how did enclosures come to pass and how did we shift from things like the right to roam and tending the common to enclosures and private property and the over extraction we see now yeah I think it's a kind of eternally good question that people are still arguing over just to start off with, in terms of the like what's the start what's the point what's the thing because it seems wild like that it happened in a way that a few people such a minority of people in the world could gain such power over such large tracts because it's like um the destruction of the commons in England but also this is the same period of like um, empire and the colonization of the Americas of the slave trade and you know it's um, it's a kind of mystifying one just about human nature or something you know that that, that could happen but um, yeah first off to just sort of define what enclosure is like what the thing is we're talking about um, is yeah just the privatization of land so the ability of one person to define the boundaries of a piece of land and say this is mine and you're not allowed on it um, and so what that meant is people that had been used to uh, farming land in common and having access to um, hunting fishing wood gathering uh, in many cases very suddenly had that cut off and were often evicted from the land as well so suddenly find themselves without a way to support themselves um, and 
without home often and kind of uh, displaced into being sort of urban poor and part of the industrial revolution in that way. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about with enclosure. And I think we can see different ideologies kind of like working together at the time to sort of justify this. I think like in this era, we really see this um, sort of ideology of um, maybe the sort of like post-Reformation, like pro post-Protestant Reformation and with sort of early capitalism, this idea of um, increased productivity as a value in itself. Mm -hmm. um, and with money coming into England from, um, from its empire, like from the profits being made by slaveholders and colonists, um, that was kind of providing a lot of the capital for setting up mills and other things other kind of industrial infrastructure in England um, that they wanted workers for and they also wanted more land for to graze sheep <laughs> for wool um, and it became very much in their interest to evict people from the common land and to um, use that land for yeah for to gain profit to be able to generate capital to um to sort of keep the whole thing going so this um, is when we see the clearances in scotland and ireland and different places um suddenly you can't pass there suddenly you can't go there and this is something that was also exported to the new world and and that's another example i'm remembering elder norman um, of the Schwarzenegger nation where, where i lead quest tell stories of how the places where he used to go horse riding and like go foraging and all of that as a child he like one day there were there were fences all over and it was like you know kind of shocking and that as he became a, a an adult um he would go out and cut the fences which of course is like very contentious in ranch land country yeah. um but but that that is a tool of resistance is just cutting the fences. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to Sweden on our honeymoon and we were walking along the shoreline and we were like, are we allowed to like our guide was taking us across, you know, people's backyards. And we were like, are we allowed to be here? And she was like, oh yeah, you're allowed to camp anywhere as long as you're not within their site. And you like, it's kind of, you, you know, leave a little bit, leave no trace kind of thing. And so this right to roam thing is also another thing that's like, oh my gosh, like I would love to revive something like that. It turns out this is how people have lived, like you said, for like hundreds of thousands of years, it must've been such a shock and such a loss. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like, it's kind of like you're saying, it's almost hard for us to imagine that level of contrast because we've grown up with like a lot of private property and a lot of places we can't go. <laughs> There's some way it's been normalized to us, but going from that place where you've lived forever and where you could go wherever you wanted to suddenly being um, completely uh, sort of cut off from that. And also at this, at this time, they created a lot of really intense laws against things like uh, poaching or stealing um, where people would then get um, like what do you call it uh, I would say deported but uh, you know punished by uh, forced migration um, mm -hmm. and 
or imprisoned and forced to labor or things like that or or killed for for these kind of property offenses so going from that place where you have like a right to be there to use the resources to suddenly extremely harsh consequences um for it and a kind of forcing into um this more like yeah servile dependent wage labor force yeah that must have just been <laughs> like excruciating but within that though i think one of the things that's worth noting about how they did it is with difficulty you know that people did resist this um that this wasn't something where people did just kind of roll over and like okay i guess we'll just move to the cities <laughs> you know like the person you were just talking about cutting fences like people did that they uh, took down hedges they filled in ditches for draining they you know they did a lot of things to resist this and in some places like preserved areas from enclosure or from draining if it was like a sort of wetland area for generations like they were successful for quite long periods sometimes um, and this is a process that really did take a couple of hundred years to really fully um, and arguably we're still in the process of enclosure and there are still <laughs> edges and still um, places of contestation, um, including, I don't know if you're aware of the moment, there's quite a big movement here of the Right to Roam campaign. Do you know? I've been this? following some things like this on uh, Instagram, possibly because I follow you. And so it feeds me other <laughs> things that like right yeah. in Scotland, they do have the Right to Roam, but just yeah. like on the other side of the border, you don't. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, in Scotland, kind of what you described in Sweden, it sounds very similar. Um, but in England, that's not that at all. And if, if it's private property officially, that means you're just absolutely not allowed to be there. Um, and so people are organizing mass trespasses and things like that, and trying to really challenge what um, private property means and who has rights to what within that. Um, and it's, it's really becoming quite a big movement, which is which is really cool. So yeah. It is really cool. And at the same time here, again, this is where like I, as a settler, I don't have like a felt sense of connection to that kind of loss or movement. It feels like this is all I've ever seen is trespass on indigenous land. And so it, it's like a hard thing to grapple with where it's like, well, I would love, you know, whenever um, if I'm like on the water or in a boat or on the ferry and you see all these people with waterfront property and I just think, fuck those guys, mm -hmm. you know, like it just, it pisses me off so yeah. much. And if I think about people coming across, I'm not a landowner, but if I were to try to imagine, like if I had a farm and somebody was like tromping along and setting up a, you know, campsite and having a little fire there at night, I would feel very like concerned and distressed. I'd be like, ah, like, are they going to be respectful? So there's like kind of that feeling ownership of it, but also as somebody who's trying to unlearn colonization, I think, well, I shouldn't just be like, I shouldn't be tromping around on other people's land. Like, and so this is indigenous property. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't just be like using it as I want. I want to be there in a good way. And so there's like also one more step that I would need to make, I think, as a settler to be like, so how are we going to be here in a good way where all of us have access? It, it, it feels like there's like multiple layers of grappling with that it's just so wrong in my body to be impeded from getting from like to the ocean side, for instance, it just, it just feels so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important um, and sort of interesting piece in terms of the contrast like between these two places. And I think like what you're doing and what you're saying is that kind of 
following indigenous leadership on that you know around like how to be there in a good way and sort of how to you know support like efforts in terms of like land back or in terms of indigenous sovereignty in the areas that um, you're inhabiting and stuff like that and it's interesting because I think that sometimes I notice with North America like it can seem like in Europe or in England we're just sort of free of that that burden or that issue but I think kind of like I was saying like with the enclosures um, and with the development of capitalism and with the wealth that is in this country that came from colonization and when you're walking down the streets here you're walking on wealth created by the enslavement of Africans and um, and the genocide of um, indigenous people and there's not a sort of out of it and it's interesting that even like this right to roam campaign which I think is amazing and wonderful and I don't really want to sort of criticize it but it is at the moment largely white and middle class not not entirely and really really not entirely but there's a way that those kind of things have to be grappled with here of who has access to to space who feels the safety to trespass and take that risk yeah. um who lives nearby uh, green spaces and who doesn't and and these are questions that the right to home campaign is grappling with very well but it's it's a thing you know like it's <laughs> tensions uh, exist here too just in a different way yeah so can we pull in a little bit more Silvia Federici here and for you know listeners who are new to um, Federici's work I'll put links in the the show notes but she's a just absolute powerhouse um, uh, feminist and cultural analyst uh, who wrote an excellent book Caliban and the Witch uh, Women the Body and Primitive Accumulation is that what it is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so what parallels do you see between the treatment of the land and the treatment of bodies and specifically like unable or disabled bodies yeah I think it's a really really massive one in terms of understanding some of the things that we live in now around like how we think of our bodies or how we think of what we should be doing something like that you can really see the formation of it in this and so I think it's really useful to kind of look to um an example I use in my classes and kind of love is talking about um the draining of the fens which is an area of wetland in the east of England that's kind of uh, 1,600 square miles, like quite, a, a, you know, it's a, it's a big area. Um, and the draining of the fens is a project that goes on over a couple of hundred years, but is the complete draining of that massive wetland um, into, into farmland. Um, today, less than 1% of wetland there remains, um, which is just staggering that, that it can be that big. Um, but what's interesting about that is before the enclosures, people were living on that land in a way that where they were sort of surviving by like fishing and hunting or like using the resources of the land in that way, in a way that was didn't produce excess, like wasn't productive, like in this way that they were kind of participating in the sort of bigger economy of Britain, but were kind of just like living in this in this Fenway. And the capitalists that wanted to drain that. Um, and create farmland you can read the documents of like um, their proposals of what they want to do and it's all about how the fens are this lazy landscape where it's kind of boggy and useless um, and the rivers meander <laughs> like it's funny how even a river can be described as like lazy um, and that the people, this sort of lazy, slothful, beggarly type of person, um, 
and that what they want to do is drain the fens, turn it into really productive land, um, build canals that take the water straight out to the sea um, as if that's a good thing. Um, and just like are really using this ideology of increased productivity as a virtue. Um, and we can sort of see this going along with um, the kind of religious transformations at the time and the sort of move through like sort of Puritanism and different types of Protestantism, where the preachers are literally kind of trying to make a virtue out of this um, idea of productivity, self-discipline um, and sort of demonizing uh, the ways of life that might be more communal or demonizing disability and need. Yeah, I think this is where, and a thing where Sylvia Federici has um, like interesting stuff to offer just around looking at the witch hunts and the role of the witch hunts um, in this development and looking at the witch hunts as something where it's mainly poor women who are being targeted and mainly by um, sort of upper class men, basically, um, and that it's like a sort of top down persecution um, and something I was thinking about with um, with that is she talks about how a lot of the accusations are around um, like accusing a witch of begging and then when she got refused like the butter or flour or something she then cursed the family and then the mum comes down with a really bad headache the next day so she's a witch um, and just talking about having to demonize the people who were actually most impoverished by the enclosures um, in order to kind of justify it um, rather than what we can see kind of pre-reformation is that if people are ill or don't have what they need it's seen sort of as just fate or just god just does that and it's a communal responsibility to take care of them um, or even the church sort of take care of them um, but with this ideology, it becomes like a personal responsibility and your fault if you're ill or poor. Um, and so then this idea that if you're then asking for what you need, like begging, um, it's there must be something evil about you. There must be something, yeah, really bad. And it, it reminds me kind of of how homeless people or like unhoused people are talked about or seen in our culture now that I think that there's such discomfort with like visible need um, that they're often talked about as like dangerous and threatening and stuff when they're literally just <laughs> existing, you know? Um, yeah. Are there other sites of resistance that inspire you? Like I'm thinking about Caliban and the Witch, Federici does provide examples of like bread riots and things like that, where, you know, like these, these older women, they, they did get pissed at some point and they did collectivize, you know, are there other examples that really inspire you? Yeah, I think that's um, something that's like throughout this whole period, there is constant resistance. And one of the things that inspires me is kind of, it feels like whenever you like pick up a stone to look underneath it, there's resistance, you know, that this is something that just people were doing all the time. Like, I think, you know, we can name the kind of big rebellions that are really inspiring. Let's say the Midlands Revolt, where people were so organized, there's like thousands of people coming together with an artillery to defend themselves or whatever or um just people 
collectively going out yeah and filling in ditches or tearing down fences or setting up ways of caring for each other um that are kind of outside of this ideology and it it feels like that's a constant thread and that still is a thread you know like that the project hasn't ever been completed like um we're still living in in the edge of it where it feels pretty brutal and pretty thorough but we're here talking about this right now which we wouldn't be if if it had completely won you know yeah absolutely specifically for people who are disabled what do you see happening before and after the enclosures yeah so before um and again obviously it's different in different places and different times (laughs) always feel like I have to lead with that yeah um but before there is um more of an idea of it being a communal responsibility if somebody is disabled or needs looking after more um and so that would be something that would be more shared um by by sort of community members and again also by the church like for all their faults and it's in a very sort of paternalistic power structured way but there was kind of just this idea that um the poor and needy should be cared for and if you're like disabled chronically ill or something like that um there's an ethic of that being something that yeah needs needs care like and just, there were places to go it was like here's yeah. what we do at this convent here's what we're doing at this monastery and anybody could come and eat and stay yeah. or yeah 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 so like the, that kind of network of um like hostels hospitals um in yeah in religious institutions and then if people are kind of being looked after at home um or maybe they maybe they're um disabled in a way that they participate in some activities but not in others but it's just kind of like normalized more or accepted more um and you know also a big change that we should probably mentioned already is just um like the healers that are available like in the village you know people who are um specializing in different types of herbal medicine or midwifery or um just kind of knowledge of how to care for people um could support people too like in the home and things like that um and that with this transition not only do we have the dissolution of the monasteries and kind of the destruction of all those religious institutions um but we also have the persecution of women who are providing that kind of support um through the through the witch trials and everything um where that's just a drastic change and so that combined with this um more kind of post-reformation idea of illness being your own fault or means there's something wrong with you means that people's access to care goes down drastically um and ability to survive goes down drastically you know like it's just yeah becomes becomes a lot harder yeah thank you for saying that about the healers because this seems like you know, that's getting to the core of why this is such an important part of my witchcraft. Like when mm-hmm. I think about what makes a witch, it's it's animism and it's activism. And you're mm-hmm. speaking exactly to that, right? Like, so I think I just can't get down with a, a kind of magical practice or witchcraft that, that doesn't have some kind of sense of our history, like capitalism, 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 right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like, it's really important just thinking about that different type of worldview of pre-capitalist, pre-reformation kind of worldview of a kind of more enchanted worldview, like that, even though it's Christian, it's Catholic, um, people are using a lot of charms or, 
you know things like that sort of there's a lot more just sort of active folklore about like the weather or you know just being in a body um and and magic even if that's the kind of magic that is that looks christian as in um it's praying over someone for something or like um doing a certain prayer and offering um going to, to the healing God. wells or going, going to, going the, to the healing wells yeah exactly but it's stuff that we might recognize as magic but was sort of normally christian um and that this worldview was really attacked by the ideologies coming in um and sylvia federici makes the i think convincing argument that this is kind of because with magic it's looking at getting something for nothing it's you know it's power that's obtained not through work and a wage but it's outside of that um and also is you know magic is something that weaves us into relationship you know it has us paying attention to our relationships to plants to the cycles of the moon to rain you know <laughs> whatever um and this is something that's a threat to a social system that wants bodies to be cut off from that really and willing or able to survive in a sort of factory setting cut off from senses and rest and pleasure and stuff like you really have to break people's spirits you know like I'm laughing with the horror sorry yeah you know to be able to kind of get through that and so that attack on kind of um magic or um yeah non-rational ways of thinking or in a way highly rational ways of thinking that we're interconnected with all life <laughs> but mm, yeah mm. That's, a, that's a massive part of this transition yeah totally the the other Sophie who's a brilliant person with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome Sophie Strand <laughs> was on the show <laughs> and, <laughs> and and she was talking about like the supernatural is the most natural way. Magic is yeah. the most natural way. Enchantment is the most natural way to be in. It's capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchy. You shouldn't say it in that way, but like essentially capitalism yeah. um, as a stand-in is the most unnatural way yeah. to be human. Yeah, truly. And I think it's so bizarre that we're living... Um, in this period where it's become so naturalized and normalized that people will sort of make arguments about human nature or like the reality of the world from this extremely recent human experiment basically and obviously it's an experiment that's got so out of hand that it might destroy you know whole ecosystems and possibly the world or whatever like it's it's wild how extreme that is but it's so I feel like our bodies do remember and do feel something different to that um because we've evolved over millions of years <laughs> to something different than that you know and I think that's the way we're always coming up against um our kind of desires or our feelings um in contrast to what we're told we're supposed to be doing um in our cultures um and I think that's what we're you know we have a lot of pushback throughout history and now well and it's so ironic then if we think about kind of like instagram witchcraft craze kind of thing yeah. or like tiktok witchcraft and you know me trying to find my place a little bit there because i do like the magic of the internet like i do mm -hmm. think like that's a pretty amazing conjurer to be able to like access all this and it could be a power that that we harness you know for good in some ways um and it does feel like a fairly direct uh, parallel, like a repetition compulsion in our history to be like, okay, this thing is happening and I want to resist it. And I still have to, I'm trying to survive within it. But this is why I hope that listeners who are curious or, or even, um, 
Well, I'm going to say particularly if, if you're a well-practiced witch and you're here, then we clearly are on the same wavelength. But if you're a newer witch and you haven't really thought about how you're being sold the archetype of the witch or the archetype and, and, and like, it can cost just like baffling amounts of money sometimes to like go to these retreats or get these once a month spell kits or all that stuff. It's like very tricky yeah. to be a working class witch. When I see witchcraft and capitalism getting whipped up into a frenzy together, it, it hurts my soul and my body. <laughs> it's just so ironic. It's so painful to see like a glossed over hyper-capitalist version of uh, an hyper-consuming version of witchcraft. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I really, really think that. Um, and it's funny, it reminds me of something um, in the period that we we're talking about, which is I often think that this kind of early days of the internet is like in the 17th century, the early days of cheap printing, um, when suddenly people could make pamphlets that would um, go out and be spread around um, where a lot more people had access to sharing their ideas and to hearing new ideas and people kind of moving around in this era um, sharing those ideas and those pamphlets and what you see is um, a lot of radical ideas um, getting shared that way and a lot of really cool stuff coming from that like um, in terms of different social movements or ideas um, but it gets shut down basically um, by those in power who realize that it's this tool that can be used in this way um, and start to create a monopoly over who can print things and who can do things. And I think that we've seen a similar thing happen kind of already where compared to the early days of the internet, we all know the kind of curse of the algorithm or whatever that it will promote certain content that it's not a completely free sharing. Um, and it's, it is quote unquote just a tool like the sort of early printing presses is and the power structures that we're living in are being expressed through it um mm -hmm. and so we're seeing all these different things but I think there is still the possibility of using it as a place of um challenging these these norms and of promoting working class witchcraft <laughs> yeah yeah I hope so I I think often I relate to um the period of like the late 1800s, the early 1900s, where farmers had had um, like horsepower was displaced and they were using steam engine. And uh, there's a great book, it's called Horsepower and Magic. And the first half of it is about actual farming. Like, And they talked about what it was like when the steam engines came in and how this was going to be so bad for the soil. They were already talking about that then, that like, this is, we're going to hit a limit of what this actual land can do. And the second half of the book was about the magic of horses and, and how they healed them with herbs and all of that kind of stuff. And I really, right now in my life, I relate to that period of time of just the writing is on the wall and you just know, like, we have to stop. <clears throat> is there a period in history that you look back to that you particularly relate to as feeling so um, like salient to our days today? Mm. Uh, I feel like I jump between a few. <laughs> a lot. Yes. I feel like at the moment, um, I feel like this the period that we're kind of talking about, um, especially the 1600s, when you see, and especially the middle of that period, when you have movements like the diggers and it seemed at the time like things could go the way of the kind of radicals, I guess. Like it was a time when these things were still very much in flux 
and the capitalists hadn't like fully won you know and I think about that of like um what it's like to be in those moments where like a lot is possible but there's a lot of power against you and I think that seeing people's creativity and um stuff in that time is inspiring to me a time period I've been deep in at the moment with local history is the 1830s um which is when you get um the new poor law and the kind of mass introduction of workhouses and a big change in how poor relief is administered um, and also changes in agriculture that mean um, a lot of work's lost and things like that and there's a lot of stories of uh, resistance to that that are kind of remind me of the kind of uh, atmosphere of what's going on in England right now which is uh, post 10 years of the right-wing government of um, austerity and the so-called cost of living crisis and where people are really struggling to meet basic needs and kind of what's going to happen next with that like where are the tipping points with that um, and you know we are seeing more strikes in the last year in England than in than there have been for a long time um, and so that thing where people's material needs are suddenly really challenged and um, people have to come together to kind of resist that um that's interesting and inspiring to me I've also been looking a lot at early Christian saints in the, oh, yeah. in the um sixth and seventh century locally as well um as just this type of Christianity that's much more um animist really where they're very connected to the healing waters and healing plants and and connecting with animals and magic and stuff um and then looking at what happens with um the kind of enforcement of a very patriarchal non-animist Christianity um, and that kind of uh, massive culture shift um, I think has a lot of interesting points for us now too. I always find it interesting to look back and try to see like and so how long did that culture shift take like when they say it actually mm -hmm. took 400 years for the Roman Empire to to fall and so the average Roman you know, the way they started their life and ended their life didn't actually seem that different, mm -hmm. really. It took like multiple mm -hmm. generations for that baseline to shift. So I'm, I'm, I'll be fascinated to see, you know, looking back, it'd be amazing from, from some cosmic perspective, how, where was I in the great transition, <laughs> you know, in history, how far away yeah. are we till something very different, you know? Yeah. I think about that a lot too. Like, a, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> How do you cope with the grief and the rage of confinement? Yeah, I think it, it, it's interesting. I feel like one of the places I'm experiencing the most like grief and rage, and how's it when you use that word confinement, um, what I think about is at the moment, there's a massive housing building uh, operation in, in the county I live in, in England more broadly, but um, the town I live in, which is Faversham in Kent, has... Um, housing developments happening in every direction surrounding the town and this is true for most towns in Kent at the moment um, and a lot of um, villages too like beautiful land is being destroyed for housing um, but it's mainly large uh, housing <laughs> for people with a lot of money it's not even like for the social good so it's this land that's kind of like with I guess it's a continuation of what we're talking about um land that's being out taken out of um access either for food production or for just walking on or enjoying um is now being 
taken to just profit the uh, developers. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel really, yes, yeah, sort or of suffocated by it, the sensation of it. And also, um, I don't know if it's made it in the news over there, but we've having this massive problem of pollution in the rivers and the sea at the moment. Mm. Um, the water company has was privatized, I forget how long ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago. I can't remember exactly when, but um they've basically to maximize profit, maximize profits, been releasing a lot of untreated sewage into the water around here. So it's meant a summer of mostly not being able to go in the sea or um in the rivers. And that feels awful <laughs> to me and lots of other people here. Um, and that's literally, another, it's just profit, you know, so they have a right to destroy that kind of commons of the sea um, for their individual profits. So sometimes I have like some pretty intense feelings about this. Um, but I think like what helps me cope with those feelings is a couple of things, like is the obvious like connection, you know, with people who feel similarly and we can share these things um and also to you know plants and animals and places that are still here um and I think one of the things that's kind of prepared me for that is grief and loss in my life and a kind of appreciation of what remains like I think um especially like I was with a friend um when they died last year and it was quite it had quite a big impact on me as you as you might expect um, but one of the things that's changed for me since then is a real appreciation of life and of the gift of it. Like it feels genuinely kind of miraculous to me most of the time, just that we get to be here and <laughs> do this. Um, and thinking of like the scale of loss really means that the things that we do have really do feel precious to me, just like a tree outside my window or an apple in my kitchen that I'm going to eat feels like a miracle if I think about it for a second you know um and I feel really fed by just being able to like appreciate and be nourished by these kind of smaller things um and I feel like that really helps me with with coping with it yeah wow I'm, my eyes are tearing that's so beautiful it's like the opposite way of a lot of people like oh the problems are so great and so I feel so overwhelmed but mm -hmm. it's like the antidote to that is what a miracle then that this apple exists yeah. and I'm gonna eat it <laughs> it's amazing yeah. it is it's a miracle <laughs> and, like, and especially you know when we're looking at this history at just how much has been destroyed the fact that we're here having this conversation about this you know or the fact that I you know we do have what we do have is because people have have resisted or fought for those things and um and we get to live in the benefit of that and that's that's a miracle that's that's wonderful <laughs> mm, well I can't wait for witches new year for folks to be able to spend more time in the miracle of that thank you so much for sharing this so far today Sophie always enjoy hearing you speak could hear you talk forever about this I really appreciate that oh thank you thank you Carmen You'll find links to Sophie's work and her socials in the show notes in your podcast player or at numinouspodcast.com. And I hope you'll join us at Witches New Year. Uh, Sophie's going to talk about the transition from a centuries-long tradition of a rotational system of soil management that included fallow lands, which in effect mirrored the social rhythm of much more rest and recovery in social times, like she mentioned today. So this like Protestant and capitalist work ethic we know now um, 
which not only like devalues and erases disability, but directly causes disability. So her session at Witcher's New Year is called Fallow Land Restful Bodies and tickets are on sale now at my website, also linked in the show notes. I would like to thank this listener who gave a five-star review to the Numinous podcast in their podcast app. Rachel Sage from Canada wrote, so applicable from collapse awareness to somatics to attachment styles and relationships and more. I love listening to Carmen's podcast. It helps me feel grounded and expands my mind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel Sage. I super duper appreciate that. Once again, Rich's New Year is happening this year on Saturday, October 28th. We've got Sophie, we've got recent guests of the podcast, Shauna Jans, leading ancestral veneration for non-linear lineages. Uh, we have author and therapist, Taranae Erfan, leading therapeutic writing for Collaborative Rage, and Thea Anderson, key contributor to a project we all know and love, the Chani app, the number one astrology app. She will be giving us the lowdown on the astrological outlook for 2024. It's a hot ticket. Get it now at my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.